Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. Tim, this is going to be a good one today because our guest is checking in from New Hampshire. New Hampshire. I knew when I heard a summer place in New Hampshire, I thought, oh, Jeremy's going to be so excited to be talking about that. Sister who went to Brandeis, place in New Hampshire. This is a, a man after my own heart already, and I just met him. Josh Adler, Sourcewater. Tim, Sourcewater, uh, they sponsored one of our podcasts a few weeks yeah. ago, right? What, what, three weeks in a row, they, they sponsor a podcast. It was pretty cool. We did a little read. We really didn't know much about Sourcewater, but then this was right before Energy Tech Night, by the way, had a blast. And then, you know, I sitting out there in the audience, look up, and there's Josh doing the presentation on Sourcewater and Frackscape. And I uh, thought, man, we got to get him on. And, you know, this right. is not paid. This is just us want to talk to talk to Josh about what they're doing. But uh, it was a fascinating presentation. And we're going to dig into that because there were some moments where everyone was just a little bit scared about how much Josh could know about what's going on. <laughs> Wait a second. Yeah, I want to, uh, you know, Josh, before we get into kind of all of the business and uh, entrepreneurial happenings, let's take it back even before Yale University. Where, where'd you grow up? What were your interests? How'd you get to Yale? And then, you know, your, your career subsequent. Oh, man. I, um, I grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., um, uh, that, that's two in a row. Wait, two in a row. Yeah, the no. last podcast we we hit on this right away. If you live in Chevy Chase or Bethesda, yeah, he <laughs> he went to Georgetown Prep. <laughs> I did not. I went. I went to the public schools, but nice, public nice. Schools. Uh, yeah, no, I went to to uh, Whitman High School in Bethesda, Maryland. There it uh, is, nice area. Yeah, well, it was a good place to grow up, and, and great public schools, and all good. Um, I. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know, because I grew up in the suburbs. They are pretty typical stuff. Um, uh, early, early interest besides lots of you know sci-fi and sword and sorcery books that convinced me that uh, <laughs> my first my first business plan. I think I was about seven years old, and you know I was born in '73, so I think the energy, you know, the oil crisis of the '70s, I mean the '73 and then the '79. I think that those. I had some awareness of those in my wow. little, you know, kid consciousness. And my first business plan was that I was going to invent fusion power. So, you know, infinite clean energy. People don't think about energy as clean or not clean those days, but basically no. infinite energy. And uh, I was going to use my patents on fusion power to power the world buy a large portion of Australia, create a new country there, of which I would be the ruler, yes, and nice. I would name it sort of loosely after myself. And then with my <laughs> revenue, I would um, build a fusion-powered space fleet with, with which I would colonize the solar system and beyond. Unfortunately, Elon Musk stole my plan. Yeah, uh, but <laughs> say, the, the race the race is on. You're 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 a little behind. I am behind. I'm very behind. I was confident that by the time I was 30, I would be giving some sort of speech to you know the assembled Earthlings before me, uh, telling them of our plan to colonize the galaxy. And um, you know, I hit 30. No one listened to my speech, and um, <laughs> I went back to the drawing room. So, uh, 
it's uh, you know. Well, you dream big. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, well, I've had to revise a few times. I think the second career choice was I wanted to be chief expert. Uh, not of anything in particular, just, just the yeah, chief yeah, expert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the reason, I had a good reason for this. Because I wanted to be the person who the president would call immediately when aliens arrived. So the idea was, you know, when the aliens do show up, <laughs> I want to be the guy on the other end of the red phone where they're like, Josh. The aliens are here. We need you to go talk to them and figure this out. That was the plan. So that one came and went. Oh, that one, I mean, that one's still on the way. You know, that one could happen. <laughs> uh, Good luck. I mean, yeah. So, yeah, you know, I'm still holding out for that one. So uh, anyway, I, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, we've been high school. I was a high school wrestler or high school debater or high school singer, all those things. And uh, uh, so got a, got a, the lucky break as a non-legacy, non-scholarship athlete, kind of no other advantage, yeah. flipped into Yale from a public school yeah, and uh, had a good time there. Most of my activity there was acapella singing. Hmm. Uh, so wow. uh, yeah, kind of gave up on the on the staying fit while I was in college, uh, as, as <laughs> most of us do. And uh, uh, did a lot of acapella singing with a group called the Alley Cats, a group called the Whip and Poofs. Really, it was a amazing opportunity in that you know got to hang out with a bunch of my buddies these were both all-male groups and really travel the country travel the world with our concerts paying for the travel which was incredible and i was mm -hmm. the uh i was uh sort of uh, elected the mc for these groups so i was typically the guy who was coming out between the between the songs and telling the jokes and telling the stories and trying to get people to laugh with kind of funny yet tasteful uh original humor so that's uh probably one of the better better preparations I'll tell you, you for know, a, uh, just uh, sitting here listening to you you've got the voice for it's got a great voice being empty or doing your own podcast for that matter yeah like i feel like i've heard you maybe i've listened to one of your presentations but you seem to do this a decent amount you got the nice microphone over there like clearly you're do you have a podcast or do you just do some podcasts like <laughs> no but it's funny you say that because in high school, I was not, you know, in the superlatives, I was not elected most likely to succeed, but I was elected most likely to be a DJ, <laughs> which is, you know, almost the same thing. <laughs> so you know, actually, Basically. I, uh, I, uh, I did the morning announcements in my high school every so day for four so years. So did I. Uh, guys, <laughs> yeah. Four years? You I, did it really? Oh, pretty much. Yeah. Cause I walked wow. my freshman year. I was just like, I want to do this. And I walked into the principal's office and I was like, what does a guy need to do around here to do the morning announcement? They're like, well, you're it. You're hired. So, uh, didn't <laughs> Literally much, the but, same. Uh, this is the same story as me. It's the same story as me. I, I think I was a freshman and there were a couple people that did the announcements and then it just disappeared. Like a couple days they did the announcements and I walked into the principal's office and I'm like, Hey, can I do the announcements? And they're like, sure. So did it a little bit sophomore year. Then for whatever reason, it died down. Senior year, they're like, okay, you can come back and do this. I was class president, whatever. And I decided to take some liberties with it. And the vice principal pulled me over. This is like a militant, like military guy. Ex -mil and he's yeah. like, uh, a little um, more CNN, a little less sports center. And I didn't <laughs> take, take heed to that. And he kicked me off for good. Uh, yeah, they... Um <laughs> they they keep it on. I always kept it appropriate. But by my That's senior funny. year, people were so used to hearing me every morning 
that yeah. even when I didn't show up, they still thought I had. And so it was, I was at that point, I was kind of, you know, training some, like a group of people to take it over as I was going to be heading yeah. out. And so a lot of my senior year, I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, the best on attendance, especially on early morning arrivals. And just people didn't really notice because I'd show up, you know, I'd show up for second period or whatever and be like, yeah, I was doing the announcements, you know? And they're like, oh, okay, sure. Come on. <laughs> it, it runs really late. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking at your profile here. I see, you know, uh, you know, you studied economics and besides acapella singing, uh, yeah. economics and Chinese studies. That's, yeah. a, oh, that's cool. That's kind of cool. Yeah, well, I mean, let's let's not get um, uh, uh, overly uh, uh, ambitious here. I mean, I was just doing acapella singing. Um, however, I graduated <laughs> <laughs> with a degree in economics uh, somehow. Uh, the uh, uh, the Chinese actually is, is kind of an interesting story in itself because when I was uh, when I was in middle school, so again, this is like mid nineteen eighties. I um, somewhere I heard that. Uh, a billion people lived in China. And I came home mm. one day, this is kind of the way that my my late mother told the story, but basically I, I came home one day and uh, said, mom, one billion people live in China. Yes, Joshua. That's one quarter of the world's population. Yes, Joshua. I think I better learn Chinese. So I went to a night school. <laughs> I signed up for wow. a night school. There was all adults who worked for the, there was like a government language program uh, for like professional mm. studies, you know, and I started going to night school once and twice a week in middle school to learn Chinese, just basically off of that. And in fact, the textbooks for Chinese came from Yale. And it turns out that Yale has this really long history of a relationship with China that goes back to like the 1800s. And so that actually influenced me in yeah. part to want to go to Yale. And I thought mm. if I go there, I'm going to study Chinese. Well, it turns out it's a lot mm. harder in college when you're doing acapella and it's hard to wake oh, up for the 8.30 a.m. classes. Um, but I did do it for a few years. <laughs> do not ask me any questions in Chinese. You know, if we were both dropped by parachute in Beijing, I might find a bathroom faster than you. But other than that, uh, we'd probably be equally lost. So let me, you know, let me not overstate my <laughs> competence, lest someone call me on it. I just That's like funny. the fact that in junior high, you're going to go take Chinese for a, for fun, a class for fun. I was trying to figure out how to, you know, spend a couple hours on the driving range, just kind of you know, throwing <laughs> things around. I wasn't going to be doing anything like that. I think that's why you have CEO after your name and I don't. I was out there playing tetherball by myself. Like, <laughs> anyways, uh, so this is, hey, that's this another is a thing really, we have in really common. fun one. <laughs> oh, I assure yes. you, I was the last picked for any sports game, and I think I was probably only going to play tetherball by myself. <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. Um, so, so I'm I'm curious then. So, so you know, you finish up school, right? You kind of get out in the world and and take sort of an entrepreneurial route with a clearly right now a focus on oil and gas. How has everything in your career sort of led up to source water and and whatever you guys are doing today? Give some insight into that. Yeah, I think I think the 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 led up to my career is based on the principle of anytime something started going well, I got to do something different and harder. Uh, the, uh, uh, it, I actually, you know, my, my, my start in entrepreneurship was in high school. I think the first business, first of all, 
I've never worked for a company that I didn't start with the exception of two years where I worked at the U.S. Treasury uh, in my uh, around when I was 30. Wow. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. But when I was in, in high school, my first business I ever started was a summer debate camp. You know, I mentioned I did debate in high school and a friend and I who were two of the top debaters in the region, we figured out that we could just kind of put out brochures and get other kids' parents to pay us to tell war stories for a few weeks and, you know, get paid for it and rented in like a rented hotel room, like a conference room. Uh, but later in high school, I, um, with a friend, I started a company that was originally called Scholastic Matchmakers, which turned into arguably the first online matchmaking company. And this was in like 1989, 90, 91, into the early 90s. And so I ran that and some related stuff huh. all through college. So when I said I only did Occupy in College, it's not really true. I was basically running my online business during the day from my dorm room that had three phone lines coming in. And a lot of FedEx truck deliveries coming and going. And I had a pager, which in those days, you generally only meant one thing in business. So <laughs> uh, the, uh, yeah, yeah. But I was using it for something else. Uh, and then by night and on weekends, I was doing the acapella. So there was, there was a bit of a sacrifice on the classes there. But um, after, while I was doing that through another whole story, I got connected to a venture capitalist who was in my hometown of Bethesda. And I started working for him during the summers. And um, he, to a small degree, you know, put a little bit of money up essentially on my 19-year-old personal guarantee into that business. Uh, and while there, I got introduced to a guy who was uh, the founding CEO of a medical device company, at which point it was just him and a little bit of money from this venture capitalist, that guy recruited me to basically be his lieutenant starting that company up. And so at the end of college, I sold what was, again, arguably the first online matchmaking company in 1996 to a French company that wanted to own Amour.com because we were, by then we were Amour.com, like mm. French for love. So it's like owning love.com in France. That site became a, an online yeah. matchmaking site in Europe. Uh, and... I helped start this medical device this company that around? took me to Dallas. You know, I, I haven't even typed it in a long time, and I'm a little afraid to because you never know what kind of photos are going to pop up. Uh, but there was a funny moment. Gosh, it must have been <laughs> years ago. Uh, there, about 10 years ago, there was a uh, one of those e-Hollywood specials, and my wife was watching it because she watched a lot of e-Hollywood specials, not because I was. God forbid. And uh, it was like the <laughs> Heidi Fleiss. And I know, I mean, you know, you guys may not remember this, but there, if you remember Heidi Fleiss, she was like the Hollywood madam. And this is a long time ago, man. And so uh, uh, there was a scandal because it was like, I don't even want to say names because I remember which ones were rich. But basically, like a bunch of famous, you know, Hollywood actors were hiring prostitutes from this Hollywood madam. And there was this whole expose. And so there was this E-Hollywood special on it. And oh, man. during the E-Hollywood special, completely inexplicably, there are a whole bunch of um, uh, well-endowed young ladies wearing Amore.com t-shirts, which I had nothing to do Ooh. with this. I don't know how this came about, but it was the strangest thing. And so I don't know if it was a promotion for the, this European matchmaking site, but it was just like such an odd come around on that. Uh, but anyway... So I got out of online matchmaking in 1996, a little before the internet was a big deal, and uh, helped start a medical device company in Dallas. 
which um, because the company moved mm. to Dallas early on. It was in Colorado and then Dallas, um, which took me to Texas for the first time, at least living in Texas the first time. Um, the first time I was really in Texas was on one of those acapella tours where I walked out to MC in the uh, Fort Worth Petroleum Club, which I've since been by, you know, 20 times in the last 10 years because I'm there all the mm. time. And I'm um, like, that's the place. And I came out and we had just flown into DFW Airport and I came out in the Fourth Petroleum Club and I was like, well, we sure are glad to be here in Dallas. And uh, the booze. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, no. Down. I didn't. <laughs> That's I did awesome. Not know. I mean, the airport's called Dallas-Fort Worth. I did not know that those were two different places, A and B, that they would really take offense. <laughs> So I had to dig my Ooh, way. That was yeah. well, I think I think our concert right after that's that funny. was in uh, Minneapolis. And that time, you know, the airport there was like Minneapolis, St. Paul. And I remember like I was asking the taxi driver, I was like, so tell me straight, is it Minneapolis or is it St. Paul? I just want to be real clear because <laughs> <laughs> I've made that mistake somewhere else. That's uh, awesome. But uh, anyway, so moved to uh, moved to Dallas in my 20s and I uh, had a good time there as a, a, a single guy in my 20s in Dallas, kind of the late late 90s. And uh, uh, that medical device company was um, uh, its own whole log story, but, but, you know, five, six years of that, getting into a regulated industry, it wasn't as much fun as doing internet um, and a little bit of poor time and getting out of the internet in 96 when I was the half owner of a company with, you know, half million yeah. users in 50 states, not realizing that was going to be a big <laughs> deal. And uh, uh, so we got to 2001, the medical device company, which we developed a lot of cool technology for miniature wireless cardiorespiratory monitors for infants and old folks, chronic disease, had a lot of patents, got it through the FDA process, the EU approval, signed a bunch of licensing deals, but no revenue yet. And uh, we hit the combination of the dot-com bust and September 11th. And for those who, who weren't uh, alive or have memories of those days, you couldn't raise private capital for anything uh, at the end of 2001. And so even yeah. though we weren't a dot-com, there was just no way we were getting more venture capital. And we uh, we ran out of money. We closed up shop. And so I was unemployed in Dallas at the end of 2001, uh, you know, wearing my bathrobe. I had a nice house by White Rock Lake. Uh, uh, not like a big house, but it was nice because it was like a water view in Dallas. When does that happen? Well, it was a nice thing for a single guy to have, you know, to show off. Yeah. And there's not uh, many of those, yeah, right? Yeah, very yeah nice. exactly. Uh, Waterview in Dallas, what? And uh, uh, I uh, was, you know, kind of making omelets for myself and working out a lot and really didn't know what I was gonna do with my life. Uh, and I got a lucky break and got a call from uh, folks who work for President George W. Bush, who uh, I had applied for a job with like, you know, a year before, didn't hear a thing. And then all of a sudden got called in some, for some interviews and was offered the position of chief speechwriter for uh, President Bush's treasury secretary, which was Paul O'Neill at the time. And uh, they were like, well, you know, when do you think you can come up here? And I was like, um, tomorrow. So I moved back. <laughs> I'm not doing anything yesterday. My, <laughs> right. I'm pretty busy around here. I'm pretty busy. Uh, what's your tomorrow? So um uh, I got other, I, I got other people. I'm in demand. I'm in demand. Um, which office. So, uh, I got myself up there as quick as I could, bought some suits and, um, started working for the treasury secretary for president Bush did that for two years. And while I was there, another friend and I, uh, another friend at the treasury department who worked for president Bush 
we were just kind of dabbling in DC real estate together, looking to buy houses for ourselves. And one thing led to another, and we started doing these kind of neighborhood real estate deals on the side. We we hit a couple of home runs just kind of at lunchtime. And at some point, I was, uh, you know, I was just like, well, I, we're getting, you know, we're getting too lucky here. You know, it's the economist in me says, there's an old joke about economists. Two economists are walking down the street and one of them sees a $100 bill sitting on the street and says, hey, are you going to pick that up? And the other one says, no, because if there was really a $100 bill there, someone else would have already picked it up. And uh, that's that's uh, <laughs> a joke about the strong markets or efficient markets hypothesis, which is there's never, there's kind yeah. of never arbitrage in an efficient market. But it turns out that in real estate, or at least in uh, DC real estate at that time, there was a lot of arbitrage available uh, to, you know, to... To uh, dumb guys who didn't know anything, but who were smarter than the other, even dumber people trying it. And uh, so we did a lot of deals. Mm-hmm. We went full time on it. We created a real estate development company. Each time we kind of went twice as big as the last one. We really didn't have investors for almost any of our 100 plus deals. It was just us kind of keeping our little chips on the table and continuing to spin as the pile got bigger and then a lot smaller when we hit the uh, financial crisis. And then a lot, a lot bigger when we came out of the financial crisis. And at that point, uh, you know, around 2011, 2012, my partner was like, hey, you know what? I'm getting out of the train while it's in the station. I don't want to go on that loop to loop again. So um, I've done what I feel like I need to do. I'm going to travel the world, have a good time and de-stress. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, urban real kind of urban cowboy real estate development is about as stressful a business you can be in that doesn't involve with, with all respect to uh, the men and women in our military that doesn't involve wow. actual people shooting real bullets at you. So <laughs> <laughs> that way more stressful, way more stressful, no question. But, uh, you know, when you've got personal guarantees on tens of millions of dollars of loans yeah. and you've got neighbors and politicians and, you know, protesters and tenants and lenders and, you know, everybody's fighting everybody all the time. And as I, as I used to like to say, uh, uh, you know, why were we always, always getting in a fight over everything? Why every time does it end up like this? And uh, my answer was, men have been fighting over land since the beginning of time. Yep. And now we do it with papers instead of with swords and spears, mm-hmm. which is good for us. <laughs> yeah, so, that, that's, a, that's a healthier evolution now. It's uh, so at that point, I thought, you know, maybe this is a chance for me to reevaluate my career too. We've been doing this for 10 years. It's been a great success, but you know, you know, my friends, my friend who I started the company with, he's traveling the world. Maybe I'll take a break too. So I got into this program at MIT called the Sloan Fellows. I got there. I got into this sub-program there called Energy Ventures, mm. which um, I did not know nothing about, at mm. least not since my five-year-old fusion power days. And uh, I just thought, hey, this sounds cool. Uh, and so we started doing it. One of the first uh, lectures we got was about the shale revolution. And it was, I mean, they cover everything. They're covering solar and wind and nuclear and whatnot. But it just happens that one of the first ones about the shale revolution. And I looked at this, this is 2012. I looked at this growth curve in unconventional gas from 2005 to 2012, which at that time was basically all Marcellus. Yep. And uh, it was like, you know, 20x in seven years. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> that's that's happening in my country right now and i didn't know about it yeah and uh this is coming off the you know the, the uh 
Great Recession, 2007, 2010, when energy was like the one strong aspect of the entire U.S. economy. Uh, And I was like, I did not know about that. And that curve looks like PCs in the 80s, Internet in the 90s, real estate in the 2000s. I'm not letting this one get past me. So I just started really digging into it. And it seemed to me that, you know, what is it that's new about this unconventional energy thing that isn't part of the conventional? Because that's where the opportunity is going to be as an entrepreneur. And it seemed to me that really the new thing was the water. Uh, You know, for the first time, water is the biggest thing by far in or out of the energy supply chain. That was never true before. Where are the, I'm not going to invent some new membrane. I'm not, I don't have the capital to build some, you know, pipeline company, but I can do the data. So where's the data and the market around water as a commodity? Oh, there isn't one. All right, I can do that. Well, here we are like nine years later, and um, I'm still trying. (laughs) We've had some success, but we've also, it's been a long journey. Uh, You know, I know a lot about a lot of stuff that I probably shouldn't know about and nobody else knows about. And, you know, I love to tell the stories. So (laughs) that kind of, that kind of got us going. Yeah. So Jeremy, I wanted to, we, he did this demonstration, or well, I, I guess it was a demonstration of what they were doing at Energy Tech Night. It was, it was absolutely yeah. fascinating. So, you know, you, I'm amazed at what data is available, but he can get up there and tell you, hey, there's a bunch of people based on their cell phone usage or based on their cell phones just moving around on a pad. That must mean there's a lot of drilling going on or there's a frack going on. Mm-hmm. And so then they, they're using the satellite images and the cell phone data to basically say, hey, there's a there's a frack getting ready to happen over here. So you basically a couple of weeks early, all your subscribers will be able to know, hey, there's a there's a frack job getting ready to happen on this site or this site and that site. So they can. And it was just absolutely fascinating to see the little red dots moving around of where all these guys were with cell phones. That's really, that's neat. Yeah. Tim, I think you were telling me about that um, yep. a- afterwards with the, with, with somewhat of a, a level of excitement. Um, and, and I'm curious who, who are you selling this to? Are you selling it to services companies? Are you selling it to operators like both? What is the target market for you? Yeah, it's, it's definitely both. And it's, it's interesting how this came about because the original idea for source water was to create an online marketplace for water, particularly water recycling, yeah. kind of like Airbnb or Expedia, you know, sure. where do I find the best deal for the water I need or for the disposal I need or for the sure. trucks I need. Yeah. And where that led us was, you know, over time we figured out, okay, people who have frack ponds on their property in West Texas tend to be really excited to get help selling their water to oil and gas companies. Right. And so how do we find all those people? And it turns out that there's just no, in Texas, there's just really no records of frack ponds. It's, mm-hmm. if, if you want to dig a ditch on your land, put down some plastic and put it, you know, fill it with groundwater from your property, that's your God-given right as a Texan. So, uh, damn right. there's no, <laughs> damn right, damn right. And so, you know, but from a regulatory or business standpoint, no one knows where these are. And it's a pretty important step in the supply chain because you can't have a frack without a pond full of water first. And so... Uh, we were trying to figure out how do we find all these. And when we discovered that there's just no records of any kind that we can use to locate them, we had a few hits and misses. And then we figured out, you know what? Maybe we can see squares of water in the desert from space. And so we started using satellite imagery. This is like 2017. And nobody had done this before. 
And then we realized, you know, there's a lot of other interesting things you can see happening on the ground in the oil field yep. from space that either never shows up in regulatory data, like frack ponds, like well pads, like lease roads, or that shows up with such a long delay that's just not that useful by the time you get it, like spuds, completion reports, or production data. And so how can we use more of this remote sensing technology like satellites to see this stuff before the kind of conventional energy regulatory intelligence type companies do it, or maybe see things that they can't see at all. And so that took us down this road of building these machine learning systems. And we've gotten 13 patents granted so far, and we've got more than 10 pending for using this combination of satellite imagery, machine learning, artificial intelligence, regulatory data, and um, and now increasingly uh, GPS location data from cell phones to to get a near real-time understanding of energy supply chain activity, basically as it happens, yeah. to see stuff that you can't see uh, you know, in, in the permit filings or the SPUD reports that you get six months or nine months or 12 months after the thing already happened. So, yeah. But uh, you so can one see, of the, so, so basically you can see water trucks leaving a pad with, I guess, uh, you know, already produced frack water yeah. and taking it back to wherever it's going to go recycling or to the saltwater disposal place. But you can also track where the truck's going from these frack ponds, where they're running from here to, you know, some pad that we know happens to be owned by Oxy. And so we know that they're getting a lot of water staged for a frack job. Yeah, that's right. And the same thing with sand or the crude oil, anything that moves in a truck. Um, now, a lot of water doesn't move in trucks, by the way. So it actually works better for sand. Uh, and which all goes in trucks or certain other kinds of supplies that go in, in trucks. If it's in a pipeline, we usually know where the pipelines are, but we don't know what's, you know, how much is, is, is flowing through them. Um, but yes, there's a, there's, it requires combining all these different methods to put them together in this holistic way to really get those results. So, so what I mean is first, you've got to know where a well pad is. Now, well pads don't show up anywhere in any kind of regulatory data. So right. how do you know where the well pad is? Well, we look in the satellite imagery and we built these systems that are trained to know what a well pad looks like for an oil or gas well and how that might be different from a home building site or a warehouse or maybe a, a frack pond pad mm -hmm. or something else that's got a road construction, something else that might look like a well pad. And Nine out of 10 times we're right. It's not always right, but it's like nine out of 10 times. It's pretty good. So you have to know where the well pad is first. Uh, and then we're able to look for uh, you know, things that happen inside the perimeter of that pad. So one is we can use a type of satellite imagery called synthetic aperture radar, which is good for certain things. It, it basically senses altitude and it bounces off of metal. Wow. So you're able to see that there's equipment on yep. the pad and mm -hmm. SAR also, it doesn't get blocked by clouds unlike optical imagery. So we can see there's heavy equipment, which might be a rig or it might be a frack spread on the pad, even if there's clouds. But we only can do that because we know where the pad is because of the other kind of satellite imagery that drew the perimeter of the pad. Then we're able to track that same location for when do people show up there? because there's data available commercially on anonymous cell phone locations. Now it's generally lagged a few days 
after the person's in that location. They don't give it to you in real time. They take the phone number off. They take the name off. So you don't know who it is, but you know that there's someone there. And so by looking for parties, basically, on well pads where there's a drilling permit and equipment, like a bunch of people getting together on a well pad in West Texas, and there's nothing else around except a permit and some equipment, what kind of party is that going to be? Well, probably not a real fun party, but it's either a rig party or a frack party. And if there was already a rig party, then it can only be a frack party. So, okay, now we know it's a frack party. And that turns out to be really the only way to track frack crews. Well, there's another level to that, which is you can look at the big party, the frack crew, but there's other patterns that happen in the supply chain. So we can look at uh, devices that visit uh, a disposal well location. And we, because of source water, that's what we do. We've got all the disposal well locations mapped already. And so we know if somebody's visiting a lot of disposal well locations, they have got to be a disposal truck driver, right? They gotta be a water truck driver. So now we can look at where they go before and after those visits, and we can see which well pads are producing that water, who are, which disposals they're doing business with, how much water is being picked up there, how much flowback is it, what else is being picked up there? Are there crude trucks going to midstream terminals? We can see that too. Um, and are there sand trucks? Say, you know, we know where all the uh, we know where at least most of the sand mines are, maybe all of them. And so we know, hey, if somebody starts driving back and forth between a sand mine and a previously unidentified location, ah, that's a frack site getting ready before there's even a frack crew there. So maybe we know there's a duck there because there had been a rig. Hmm. Maybe we see there's a frack pond nearby that wasn't there before. Now we see they're starting to accumulate sand a few days before. Okay, we can be pretty darn sure that that company is getting ready to frack. We might even have a sense of you know, what kind of frack it's gonna be and, and maybe what the future production is going to be based on the intensity of the water and the sand that they're accumulating there. So there's a lot that we can see that, again, just either never shows up in the regulatory data at all, or that shows up six or nine months later, we're able to see it, you know, within a couple of days of it happening. So, you know, and Jeremy and I are both sales guys. Now we don't sell to pads and rigs and things like that. Yeah. yeah. So I guess this would be invaluable if you're selling pipe or tools or you know, something like that to know, hey, they're building up on this for a fractor. So if I'm, I need to go out and visit the company man at Oxy for, and I know that these frack sites are being built up, it's getting ready to start. Yeah. And that, that's very valuable information to know that yeah. in, in a couple of weeks, they're going to have a frack out here. I mean, it's also competitive intelligence. <laughs> like, you, yeah. you know, it, you're, you're keeping an eye on, you're keeping tabs on what these guys are going to do and you know what they're going to do based on the, the, you, you know, the learnings you've made to this point, you know, it, it's really, it's really awesome, actually. I mean, I would think even from an investor standpoint, if somebody's bullish on energy stocks and wants to monitor activity, what, what's happening in this area, you know, you, you can start to hone in on that. It sounds like immediately, right? Even another angle, Jeremy, you and I should start a little food truck action. Yeah, we, know yeah. we know it's getting ready to happen. I would just drive it and park it on that pad. We're going to sell some burgers out here. Yeah, That's a great I'll idea. I'll see you in uh, Pecos. Yeah, yeah. You, <laughs> That's right. you bring the truck. I'll meet you there. <laughs> yeah. uh, don't worry. I'm coming. I'm coming. Okay. Uh, the, uh, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, when you think about the evolution of the industry over the last 10, 12 years, everything used to be about tracking the rig, right? And so you had companies that got into just the rig tracking. It used to be like six or 10 of those companies. Now there's like one. But, uh, you know, it used to be that when you drilled a well, that was the main event, right? And then you got the, the oil or gas coming out. That's not true anymore. 
right? I mean, the, the energy industry is not about the drilling. It's about the fracking. And so when you drill the well, you don't really get anything except a drilled but uncompleted well. And now something like two-thirds of the spending in the industry upstream is on the completion. It's not on the spud. It's not on the drilling. And you know, 100% of the water usage, the disposal usage, the sand usage, a lot of the chemicals is all about the completion, not the drilling. So it's it's just it's a change that's happened kind of gradually over the last 10 years because something like 96% of new wells are now horizontal wells. Mm. And so it's it, completions are the new spud, right? As far as you've got to track the frac crews to know anything that's happening in the industry rather than tracking the rig crews. You need to track the rigs because you know where the ducks are, but that's really it. That just tells you where the frac is going to be. And so all of the applications you're talking about, whether it's oil field services knowing, okay, where's the spending happening? Who's getting ready to spend money? Who's going to need our stuff? You know, what about the, the post-frack deals like the well cleanouts and the artificial lift and all that? If you want to be ahead of that, you have to know where the frack is either about to be, because that's where the ducks are and where the pond is showing up and the sand and the crew, or you need to know where the frack just happened without waiting six months for the frack focus or the railroad commission report to come out, in which case you're already too late. If you're uh, an operator, a lot of the value for the operators, you know, one of the big things is getting ahead of frack hits, um, because if another operator on offset lease is getting ready to frack and you don't know about it, you don't prepare your wells, you can, I mean, you can kill or water out a $10 million well in a, in a minute. And so you know, even though they talk to each other in the offset leases, it's really easy to drop the ball on something like that or overlook something. And it's, it's well, a small thing to get, help prevent it. If you get two weeks to plan for that, that intervention, as opposed to the, Hey, we're going to frack tomorrow. <laughs> you get, you get a little bit more, you know, a little bit more time to plan and, and, you know, pressure up your well. So, you know, whatever you need to do. So. Yeah, all that. And it's it also helps them stay ahead of, you know, they can save a lot on the mobilization costs if they can grab a crew that happens to be near their ducks right now before that crew go, goes back to the yard and has to add a couple hundred thousand dollars more to come back out to the same place. So you can basically play the spot market on oil field services on the operator side and save a lot of money when you've got that real-time information. And there's a bunch of other benefits too. I mean, if you know that there's going to be competition for water or sand, where you're planning a frack and it turns out you got a neighbor who's got the same thing coming up, you might get ahead of that to avoid uh, you know, non-productive time when you've got a crew sitting around but not enough water sand to actually get started because everybody started pumping at the same time. And uh, on the investor side, Jeremy, as you're pointing out, I mean, it's a way to basically get ahead of well inventories and cycle times and market shares yeah. in advance of the earnings calls. That's right. And maybe with more accuracy than the management yeah. team even has on the earnings call. Because they don't, you know, by the time things filter up to that level, they don't necessarily have the best information themselves if it's a big operation. For sure. No, this is this is really fun stuff. See, Tim, I love when people come on who have a product because I immediately hear them start talking. I'm like, <clears throat> excuse me, yeah. what I would do with your product, <laughs> sir, is this. I'm happy to hear it. But really, I think I think what you're doing is it's just the tip of the iceberg, right? Like, I think that there's going to be other things that the solution that you're bringing could do, maybe even in conjunction with other things like, like uh, you know, people showing up and, and being able to prove that they're certified with X and that they're not that they don't have COVID and, and whatever it may be coming on site. What about the um, bidding and dispatching? 
right? Mm. Like you should be ahead of the curve with that data. Conceivably, you could say, okay, you know what? We're seeing these trucks move in here. We're going to need a whole bunch of water or something. Mm. This business is about to churn. So um, it really like it's starting a supply chain that gives more insight and more predictability into the process that they have today. And I'm excited to see what you do with it because I'm sure you have ideas of what V3, 4, 5, whatever you're on now versus what it could be down the road. Yeah. Um, but the the starting point is, is really cool. <laughs> like it's really yeah. sound and it adds value. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious, like who are the personas? Who, who buys it within a company? Is it like a, a field guy? Is it an IT executive, a COO? Like who buys this stuff? Yeah, that's a really good question because on the OFS side, it's pretty straightforward. Um, it's usually a VP of business development or a head of sales because it's really about lead gen. Um, it's sure. you know, getting ahead of the competition on where there's an opportunity we should focus on, um, especially like with Dirt Work Alert, which is the product that detects the well pads before the drilling permits get filed. So, I mean, that's, um, or we call it Dirt Work Alert, but it's using the satellite imagery to see the well pads, which about one third of the time actually get built before a permit shows up. Hmm. Now, sometimes that's only a few days before. It just it kind of depends on where the construction crews are, hmm. but it helps people get ahead of where the drilling is going, you know, before the permits, obviously before the rigs. And it also helps them focus on the real opportunities and not the kind of false flags because yep. a lot of drilling permits either never get drilled or just don't get drilled for a long time, especially in New Mexico, by the way, only about half of drilling permits in New Mexico actually end up getting drilled. Wow. Um, in Texas, it's more like 80%. But still, you know, you don't want to waste your time on a permit that's not going to get drilled because there's no pad there yet. And a pad costs about a thousand times more to build than a drilling permit costs. <laughs> and so you know when the company yeah. builds the pad that they're actually serious about moving forward. Whereas when there's just a permit, you know, they, they might not be that serious, right? They just kind of threw it in for whatever reason. So um, basically on the OFS side, it's, you know, it's support for making sales. It's the same reason why people buy, you know, permit and rig tracking stuff. It's just, it gives them an edge on that. Plus we also track the rigs and the permits, right? So there's no, you're not losing anything. You're just getting better data than you got before. Mm. And so that one's pretty straightforward. And, you know, most of our sales, especially the quick ones are really anybody doing anything in OFS, especially if it's water related, but yeah. you now we're broadening that because that's an easy one, right? That's kind of a no brainer up to a point, but those companies tend to have, except for a few big ones, tend to not have a lot of budget. The, yeah. the much bigger contracts, but they're a lot more complicated, are with the big operators. And there, um, it's a different, man, that's a whole, I mean, that's like a whole show in itself because it is so complicated. Uh, yeah, I'm bummed that I've got I've to jump here because, Tim, this is one of those <laughs> that could easily go for, for an hour. I mean, there, oh, yeah. there's we didn't even talk about what you're doing this weekend in New Hampshire. You're going to head over to Portsmouth? <laughs> I really thought we were going to get completely derailed. As soon as we no, found out he, New Hampshire, like, oh, we're going to be on New Hampshire talk the whole time. I mean, Josh is oh, an interesting yeah. guy in this product. You know, we, we love cool tech, right? So Tim was all geeked up when he's like, man, you got to see this stuff. It's really cool. But you, you clearly did a, a great job of, of breaking down what's what certainly involves a lot of technology effort and concepts to now, you know, a super functional solution. So I do want to learn more. Where can people find more about you, your company? You know, where, where do uh, people get in touch with you? Yeah, thanks. Well, sourcewater.com, just like it sounds. Uh, and uh, I'm Josh at sourcewater.com. Uh, on my LinkedIn page or the company's LinkedIn page, we got some of the videos and things. Actually, that 
the energy tech night video uh, that you guys watched that came out really, really well. I'm very happy with that. So I mean, yeah. that's a great, it's like 15 minutes. That's a great introduction. And we've got that on LinkedIn and probably on our website. So that would be uh, energy tech night brought to you by digital wildcatters. Yeah, yes, digital wildcatters exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you everyone for tuning in to tripping over the barrel, a digital wildcatters podcast. There we go. Yeah, now that they're growing up, we have to be all serious. So keep it like that. Josh, my man, thank you so much. You know, on a personal note, great, great to meet you. Obviously, sister Brandeis living in New Hampshire. You and I need to catch up over a beer sometime. Hey, that sounds great. 